0: In this festival, I had loads of people come up to me and say how much they enjoyed the podcast. That's quite
1: big. What people you knew, presumably. How pissed were they? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, quite.
2: july gents we are back for the third of our monthly previews and it is safe to say john we are now in summer after our solstice how did you spend it
0: uh i spent it i did actually um go for a beautiful beautiful sunset uh with my sunset sunrise i went for the sunset
2: oh okay Yep. Yeah.
0: so uh because it's it's the longest day so you can you know sunrise and or sunset is all is all the same it's, it's just acknowledging that sort of you know movement of time and uh i thought you aim
2: to do both in the day but uh um, yeah but that's
0: usually i like to sometimes be unusual oh, okay <laughs> fine <laughs> So anyway, so first shout out to Tristan who accompanied me, and we went and uh, ah. and had a nice quiet beer, and watched the sun go down, and listened to night jars, and uh, it was absolutely spectacular. Yeah. We took some lovely photos, and enjoyed some great conversation, and uh, it's how it should be. So it was a great evening. How did what did you guys do?
2: Yeah, Rob, what did you get up to?
1: The day itself, we went on a walk, um, but which was nice. We didn't do it at sunrise or sunset, but we just made sure to get out. Um, mm. But I think we were actually packing for Glastonbury, which was nice because it meant in the days that followed, we did actually drive past Stonehenge. So mm. um, there were obviously a few people there, but I don't think they were necessarily celebrating the solstice. But no, it felt apt to be in that area at that time of year.
2: Yeah, we no, we both we, we both did it. Um, and likewise we with did. your festival John Rob and I got plenty of people come up to us and say how much they love the podcast as well at Glastonbury
1: oh fantastic yeah, it's relentless, isn't it relentless is not it yeah
2: <laughs> we actually did didn't you- manage to see any acts because no. we were just snowed under
0: yeah yes yeah. should have given you some
1: merch <laughs> yeah well Paul McCartney um, came up to us and congratulated us on, that, uh, you- on the fine work <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless him. That's
0: nice yeah. to know. Yeah.
2: No, we had a very good time, very enjoyable. Um, so uh, we, of course, now have an established sort of structure for these monthly previews um, split up into our three sections, which Rob is going to introduce for us throughout this episode. And I think we'll go straight on to the first one, Rob, which is, of course, getting some sense out of father getting some sense out of father where father nature runs us through everything that we can look forward to for this month from a sensory perspective and john you're going to kick us off with
0: well i wanted to actually just throw back a bit to nomo may Oh get uh, over which it. Is it's not, July. not over it. Move <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. on. <laughs> <laughs> but as you know, I left my patch you did. Uh, for June. And uh as another podcast listener, Sam, suggested it's too soon in June uh Ooh. for cutting. And Ooh. it did make jolly good sense because uh I've now, it's still teeming with insects in this group. But of course, the seeds are starting to form on quite a few of the plants that I talked about that were flowering there uh, throughout June. So I'm not going to leave it too much longer before I cut it all down. But it leads me very nicely on to uh, the first sense that I want to talk about, which is the uh, sense of smell, because we're going to be talking just for a little bit, actually, about Grass, because I knew know that you were very surprised about the number of grasses that we had. I was. Uh, shocked. 160, something like that. And you're actually quite sort of like taken where some of them are called things like Timothy grass, which is very sweet. So yeah. just well, think back it. to a smell that everyone adores in early spring and that's the fresh fresh cut timothy grass (laughs) exactly fresh (laughs) cut grass everyone adores it everyone adores it now obviously if you keep a lawn you you, unless you have your no-mow may etc you just mow it regularly it's the same thing you know week in week out through the season but of course grass is an agricultural crop and as such you know, this is where wildflower meadows originated because they would have been grown uh, actually not for the grass itself at the time, but for the production of hay. So you, um, what I wanted to talk about is actually the fact that sort of, uh, there's various different crops that nowadays we get from grass. And they're all slightly different, and they all have a different purpose and a different sort of what you might call life cycle. And it's something that you guys will all see in the countryside today. And they they all, I know this is a bizarre thing, have different smells. <laughs> so anyway, if you see uh, a, a tractor out cutting fairly, I'd say this is probably about a month ago, fairly lush looking grass and you think, Cracky that's too green to be hay um, and they it's all in lines and then suddenly they bundle it up and you will hear just to get extra sensory here this sound
2: Did you get that? It sounds like you're rewinding something <laughs> Very good, <laughs> VHS
0: that's exactly what's happening so what happens with uh, this fresh uh, cut grass is that it is bundled by an ingenious machine into a sort of bale. And then that is wrapped in plastic. Now that's the, uh, the sound that you hear. And I mean, we, we quite often hear it in the fields around us and then you'll stride out and you'll see that these, these massive, great black plastic bales, not always black now, thank goodness, but, uh, they're all wrapped there. So what's happened with this is all the grass has been cut and it's been stored very very compact and it's actually quite damp so it actually kind of pickles itself but because there's no oxygen allowed in um, it doesn't go moldy but it has a very characteristic smell and it produces a product called silage and that is used as like a winter feed for ruminants like cattle and uh, sheep goats that sort of thing and it has a very sweet smell when it's uh, unwrapped and fed now, uh if you see uh those that same same sound now a bit later on in the year and it's wrapping it all up in a very similar fashion that produces not something called hay but haylage. So you could say almost a cross between silage and hay. And it it, it is, it's uh it's a bit it's drier than silage but much wetter than hay and uh, sorry much yeah much better than hay so when that's all bound up in the bales it similarly doesn't break down because of the uh lack of oxygen but it it kind of uh becomes condensed and it's it's wilted when it's uh when it's actually packed up so it becomes almost like a a sort of a, a crumble topping or something like that. It's quite coarse, uh, and it's it's quite moist, and that again is a a food product, a fodder crop, for animals, and it's particularly good in the equine industry uh, because, unlike hay, it's completely dust free, and horses suffer. A lot with uh, dust issues uh, from hay, so that's that 's a second crop that it could be now. If you see uh, the the tractors out cutting the hay or cutting the, the grass now, and this is the sort of flower meadow side of it, uh, they will leave the grass on the on the field surface, but they will turn it using some more apparatus so that it almost completely dries out. And when it's almost completely dried out, they'll collect it again into bales, but they don't need wrapping at all because they are preserved by the fact that they're so dry. And uh, if you get a good wildflower hay, uh, you get all sorts of different grasses in it, plus all the dried herbs and things like that that might be within that crop. And again, it's an animal food, so it will be fed during the winter months to uh, cattle, sheep, horses you know you name it and um so you've you've got your three different products now the way uh i mean they've all got their different smell which i i like all of those smells i love the smell of freshly cut hay and uh you you'll get that over the next sort of week or two um i think most of the haylage would probably have been cut by now but you'll still see those uh sort of they look quite magnificent all the bales although probably like me you're thinking the plastic must be an absolute nightmare because it does I, I did look this up i think a mile of that plastic wrapping which is just under a meter wide a mile of it will do about 20 bales and of course you you'll get you know several hundred bales from a few fields and uh, so there's an awful lot of plastic used and all of its associated problems apparently uh you we might be seeing a lot more see-through plastic used from now on because this is more recyclable so there are moves to make the operation greener certainly greener when it first started uh all this stuff uh farmers basically would burn the plastic just to get rid of it at the end of the day so you know a massive double whammy bad for the environment but uh, so yeah that's my kick off sort of use your nostrils, use your ears to see if you can hear those tractors working but if you see those great big bales and stuff go out and uh, and have a good sniff, it's great
2: I mean we do love the smell of freshly cut grass don't we Rob? Especially mine,
1: I mean yeah. <laughs> my no vacuum may has been very successful
2: <laughs> uh, Does your grass have a scent to it? It's completely scentless. (laughs) It's completely scentless, yeah. Yeah. And senseless. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You have had some produce, though, Rob. In the garden? Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, it's been quite a successful few weeks. So, um, so obviously, the tomatoes I've been growing from seed, um, they are now... I've actually been out there today and I can see the start of my first tomatoes, which is good fun. Oh, um, nice. So, but that, you know, that was a good success. So, like, pretty much all of the seeds took, or certainly all the seedlings. So, I ended up with like um, 21 tomato plants. So oh i've had to goodness. give quite a few away <laughs> um so i've been giving it away to sort of friends and family but i've still been left with 12 so they're all potted now into their kind of final pots or i've got a few in grow bags um yeah. so i'm hoping for a decent yield there are you getting um, any flowers yet rob on yeah them? so they've all flowered oh so perfect. they've all flowered yeah um, So, are, in, are you feeding them? weeks yeah, I have feed, yeah. um, so I do that kind of once a week.
0: Yeah, perfect. Um, yeah, you should So no, well. they
1: seem to be going okay. They looked a bit limp after coming home from Glastonbury, having not seen them for about five days, so I was <laughs> worried that they might not survive. But <laughs> so did I you. expect no, you were a bit limp after that. So yeah, exactly. We looked after each other there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, but no, so, but we do, I did pick some strawberries over the weekend, which I put yeah, on the Instagram. Nice. Um
2: we that's didn't plant timing. those plants
1: yeah oh. that's kind of we've inherited those so like we noticed they came through last summer which is our first summer but they were just in the beds on the so they're like on floor level so the pigeons last year just would get to the strawberries before we did so we didn't actually get anything from them but this year we've had more success with it so um yeah i've got a little stash in the fridge which i'm nibbling out which is really nice
2: mm. beautiful right so, okay uh, yeah
1: despite the artificial lawn still getting some produce and yeah. use out of the garden. Yes.
2: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, that should be an inspiration to everyone who uh, doesn't have a garden as well. You can still grow some stuff. John, what are we going to move on to then for our next scents?
0: Right, let's use our, our site now. And I don't know whether you guys have seen this sort of in the garden at all, but it's very common and lots of gardeners sort of have a love-hate relationship probably a hate relationship with these things but aphids uh, in common parlance black and green fly Uh, I did do an Insta on our site about this actually last month because they're quite active but they're active through the year and you know we, we like to talk about sort of sexual things on father Nature, and they have do we the most yeah, <laughs> we're always talking about okay. these things, and they and we can in, we like to introduce the odd big word, so here goes i 'll start off in they have an interesting life cycle, so it 's all about reproduction, so basically, what is an aphid well it 's a a small insect it's it 's very delicate they 're beautiful if you see them sort of magnified uh they are sap suckers so basically they get their nutrients from plants and uh the uh they can form huge huge numbers so they actually overwhelm a plant and uh anyone who's growing uh let's say uh, broad beans and things will find that the black fly just use broad beans as an absolute restaurant and they they will Cover them so that they appear actually black. Now, because uh, there's so many of them, uh, they actually they they sort of poo out stuff called honeydew and that honeydew makes everything really sticky. If I mean, they're all over trees as well, and if you look at the top of your car, if you parked under trees, quite apart from bird plops, you often get a very sticky feel to it. It's all looks like someone's spattered it with varnish or something. Well, that's honeydew from aphids. Now, th- not so good for us, but uh, ants absolutely adore it. And so you'll find that um, colonies of ants will actually for want of a better word farm colonies of aphids and they will protect them from other insects because they're way down on our uh in the food chain so loads of things feed on uh aphids but the ants will give them a degree of protection but in in return they will harvest their um their honeydew so that that's interesting mm-hmm. itself, but so let's there's, there's start where we Symbiotic
2: are Symbiotic right relationship. Yeah.
1: So well, I remember this because I remember we spoke about this in the past. Because I think in one of the early episodes, John, you boldly claimed that you eat aphids if they happen to be on the food you've picked from the garden um, yeah. <laughs> and i think in following that i watched a bug's life uh, which is obviously <laughs> a colony of ants and they have aphids in that or they're like oh, did they? mm. aphids or something yeah
0: yeah well i haven't it all seen came that full circle maybe i should catch up on a bug's life yeah mm. it's actually some of those things are sort of you know they would have to relate to trees to a certain extent so so that's quite cool to hear i wonder if they told you the rest in bug's life though so (laughs) last week i saw my first winged aphid uh which gives you a clue where this is going they they have different forms so at the moment we've got both winged and unwinged aphids and indeed we have Males and females, which you would think, well, that's obvious, but I'll take you a bit further through the life cycle. What happens now is that the uh, or or further towards uh, autumn, the males and the females will obviously mate, and the females will uh, lay a huge, astonishing number of eggs, kind of like all over the place. Now all these eggs will overwinter. So they, it's this tiny little fragment. I mean, it's smaller than the grass seed by miles. It's tiny. And hopefully, they will survive the winter. And when they hatch, they all hatch into females, all of which are sterile, i.e., they don't mate. But they're not, it's not quite true to say they're sterile, but they don't mate. They are, uh, in fact, they're fertile without being mated. That's a better way to put it. So all of these eggs hatch and we get hordes and hordes of aphids, all of which are female, all of which are able to lay fertile fertile eggs without having been mated. OK, it's a process called parthenogenesis uh, and quite a few insects do it. Um, I used to keep a lot of stick insects and stuff like that uh, when I was younger. And I can remember that lots of the types of stick insects, you would only get a male maybe once every 25,000 eggs that hatched out or something like that because they were so uncommon. So that's parthenogenesis. And in aphids, that means that you get a whole raft of females laying eggs. The life cycle... or or rather the reproductive uh, capability is so incredibly fast that, and there are photos of this, by the time an aphid has been laid, as in they're they're born live uh, at this point, so there's another word, viviparous. So these aphids aren't laying eggs, they're giving birth to live young, and the process can be so fast that the live young that they're giving birth to can start to give birth before they're even fully born, so you get oh, like I'm joking. three in a row. No, I'm not like kidding. A Russian
1: doll scenario. Check it out. <laughs> yes, it is
0: like just like that. And um, I, I, I should have. Oh no, I can't for a podcast. I was going to say I should have uh, checked out a photo or something like that. But it's incredible. Now with that breeding capability, that's why. Gardeners sometimes go hopping mad because you go from seeing your first sort of three or four green fly, you know, back in springtime, and suddenly there's a thousand.
2: So, before one is born, it can be giving birth to another one. Yes. When does, when, at what point That's does that stop? Up. Or is it just like a, like when a magician pulls hankies out of his sleeve? They're just <laughs> endless. Yeah, they, they can all
0: keep laying. Eggs, without having been mated um, for the duration of their lives. But then there comes a point where the eggs that they're... Sorry, they're giving birth to fertile females that require mating, and they're giving birth to male uh, aphids, uh, which will obviously do the mating with them. Uh, And then they become oviparous, which means they lay eggs, and that's that's what we're seeing now. We, we start. We'll from now on. We'll start to get the oviparous population, which will lay the eggs, which will all turn into females next spring.
2: So they they can give birth in two different ways. That's what we're saying. Not individually, but as a species, they can. Yeah. Ah. Okay. So, so it's two. N- none di- of the ones types of of.
0: Yeah. So two types, um, but they're the same. They're obviously the same type, but they've got two different sort of reproductive functions. Right. And there's probably a word for that, but I can't... I don't know it. And we've got Parthenogenesis,
2: we've got Oviparous and... That was Phil Collins's band, wasn't it? Parthenogenesis. <laughs> <laughs> the Tribute yeah, Act. I think so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Spotify. I'm sure there is a band uh. called Parthenogenesis. Perhaps we ought to big them up. <laughs> What do you think of that for a reproductive cycle, eh? Pretty extraordinary.
1: That's amazing. It's It's mental. How are we not completely overwhelmed and overthrown by aphids? (laughs) For me, this,
0: this is our connection to nature. You can think to yourself, it's just an aphid, which it's common as muck and apparently just a pest. So it's so easy to disregard it actually it's pretty bloody interesting um that's not to say that they're not a pest and they shouldn't be controlled i've got no no beef about that but they are also incredibly important uh food source for things like ladybirds both in their larval and beetle stages wasps eat you know millions of them and uh and of course uh, birds you know so bird, birds are constantly pecking off not only the adults but the larval stages and the um the uh eggs over winter so
2: well pretty amazing beast. that is that is quite incredible the humble aphid yeah yeah, um, yeah indeed interesting there's a, a whole world out there we don't know about i don't really know how you're going to follow that to be honest john easily Oh, OK. Because if, if that's Fine. weird, you we're going to go that on. that was for...
1: weird? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm thinking to myself, aphids don't make a noise. So for all you people who are absolutely love noise, like me, uh, you might think to yourself, oh, well, we, we've got to have a sound next. So
2: yeah, nice.
0: the next sense is obviously uh, the one of hearing. And this is something that we've uh, mentioned before. I don't think we've had it before on Father Nature. So um, have a listen to this.
2: That's that. I know what that is. Good. That's um, like the old dial up connection to the internet that you used to have at home. <laughs> and
0: <laughs> Let's <laughs> <laughs> say that intro again. I think you're quite right, actually. <laughs> oh my god! Yes.
1: <laughs> and you got someone t- screaming down, "Get off the phone!" Yeah, yeah. i mean, have
2: yeah. never related
1: that, but
0: now you say it. But okay, so it's first? not that then.
2: No. Nope. Um, so what was that based upon? I mean, it, it sounded... A, I, I, I don't think it's the right time of year. It sounded quite similar to a frog. Is it a bird? It is, yeah. I was going to guess Nightjar, based yeah. on... Oh, the what did you say, Rob?
1: I was going to just guess Nightjar.
0: Yeah, well done, yeah. It's wow. That is it. It's, um, so, that, that's are. a Nightjar, and it is the most extraordinary... Bird, and i think i mean the you reason say I that every episode it, <laughs> it's last time well, was the okay. swift yeah i know but which, uh, well actually funny enough the nightjar is a relative of the swift or vice versa right, what does word, that mean look at it what are the same sort of family of birds so <laughs> what does close that relative of the swift the nightjar also a migratory bird? common
1: ancestor
0: yeah well <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm not going to go into that because I don't know. (laughs) So, but what I do know is this is pretty much the last month you'll get chance to hear that sound because, like, so many of our
2: very old computer. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes or yes <laughs> and uh so the night jar is um rather lovely bird it is you'll be delighted to know crepuscular oh thank god <laughs> yeah so dawn and dusk are its most active times uh that and it's like the swift It is an incredible flyer i mean for a start it flies here from uh africa each year it comes over to breed and it's quite common in what you might call our area southeast of england well no actually it's not common at all but we are lucky enough to have good numbers of it considering how rare it is uh can which this is one probably land, a better way of putting like
2: yeah. the swift
0: this one can land and Ooh, uh, indeed they breed on the advantage. ground yeah they, they they breed on the ground in a small scrape and uh, they'll have a couple of uh, eggs, and then chicks. And uh, if you go to an area of heathland, um, you're you're most likely to hear them. So uh, that noise is actually called churring. And if you if you re-listen to it, you'll you'll hear the clicks and claps and stuff as well. They the males will wing clap as well, which is all part of their ability to mark out territory, woo a mate, and uh, keep keep sort of competition away from where they're where they're uh, breeding. But they're they're amazing birds. They, as I say, they they fly at night and they feed mostly on moths, but also other night flying insects. They've got a huge mouth, even though it doesn't seem like it. It looks like a small beak. But they've got large, what we call a, a large gape, and so when they open their mouth, it looks like a massive yawn. And they've got bristles around their beaks as well, so they think that this probably helps them sort of catch their their prey. Uh, they're they're actually. I'd say, you know, considering they're quite a um, rare bird, they're not massively shy. I don't think they need to be because they're night flyers. So if you do go for a lovely evening walk on the heath, you need to get sort of quite late. So they want to be dusk. So you're talking nine o'clock plus at the moment, and then you'll just suddenly hear it sort of coming from the distance. You can get, you know, reasonably close to them just to hear them. And uh, it's it's quite a mesmerizing sound and experience i think so uh you know that that's my sort of you know i i guess tip for um something to hear in july that will really really uh excite you
2: yeah absolutely okay so we've we've got our um we're going to smell the grass we're gonna see the aphids and we are going to hear the night jars. Are you serving up any more sensory treats for us, John, or is that your lot?
0: Yeah, I've got another visual, actually. Um, I was reminded of this. Um, a couple of people uh, who I spoke to at, at the little festival I was talking about, and they were saying how much they enjoy the podcast and such like, which was great, so thank you to, for them for their kind words. Uh, but they they, they did... Uh, Throw a few questions out like, why are all the birds looking so damn scruffy at the moment? I went kayaking on Monday night, which was great, and uh, got very close up to uh, the duck populations along the way there. And I thought to myself, yeah, it's time we brought this up. So all you guys who like to walk along canals or around lakes and stuff and you're seeing uh, lots of waterfowl, ducks and geese and such like... Or if you feed the birds or you're watching the birds in the garden, you will notice that they're looking quite ragged. And you'll particularly notice, let's just say the mallard ducks, for example, because they're common. Everyone knows what they look like. And everyone knows that the drake, the the boy bird, has got this beautiful iridescent green head and just looks sleek and colourful. Right now uh the male ducks and the female ducks they all look the same and pretty ragged and in ducks and geese we call this uh stage the eclipse stage so what happens is basically it's because they're molting and obviously they can't molt all their feathers at once otherwise they would uh not only probably die of hypothermia uh, but also they wouldn't be waterproof and also they'd be really vulnerable to predation so the molt tends to take place over sort of you know four weeks or so and it's pretty much a few feathers at the time because of course once they've molted a feather it's not just a question of his instant replacement uh it takes a while to grow the new feathers and this is why they're looking a bit sort of scruffy because there's areas where feathers are missing, and there's areas that look a bit sort of quill orientated and uh, especially when you're used to something look, that looks sort of so beautifully preened, um, it really stands out, you know, they to the untrained eye you would think that they looked sort of unwell, you know, sick in shock (laughs) and uh but they're not they're just going through the eclipse and uh with the songbirds they're doing the same thing and we've got uh like the all the sort of um blue tits and great tits uh, the the robins that are coming to the bird table at the moment they're looking pretty ropey one way or another and uh (laughs) i I, I think the thing is they're pretty exhausted as well because they've been feeding young so and just a word about the young birds uh they're also looking pretty ropey because they are developing their winter plumage and of course i should say uh why do they need to molt well they now need to uh the the adult birds they're getting rid of the old feathers which are getting a bit run down and sort of lost purpose because they need to build a new stack of feathers ready to get through winter but also of course potentially to migrate away so if you've got uh you know four thousand uh four thousand mile air flight that you've got to do under your own power you need to be in the best possible condition
1: so new feathers all round please very good I think we look like we were molting. come the Sunday of Glastonbury
2: we were definitely yeah. in the eclipse well, phase weren't we
0: yeah well I have molted and it hasn't regrown, really grown so <laughs> that's how it goes isn't it
1: I um, heard something that I didn't recognize this morning and so Recorded it and I thought <laughs> <laughs> And so I thought we could put uh John on the spot for an ID. Thanks. Nice. If you're up for it, John. Yeah, go for it.
2: I think, John, have you had this on the
1: podcast before? Yeah. That would be very embarrassing. It was so quick and sharp, I was like I didn't know whether it was a woodpecker at first, but then yeah. Was it stopped. quite low down? Did it
0: come it's from not the low humble down? wren, is it? I think it is. Yeah. yeah. I, think I was, it was gonna is, say, yeah. yeah. Well done yeah. wren. So, oh, calling no. from fairly low down, bushes-wise, as well, opposed to high in the loft, So, I oh. <laughs> was probably higher
1: than it. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds like a wren, and that's an alarm call. And adult birds are pretty stressy at the moment, because they're nearly all feeding their fledglings. They've all left, most of them left the nest. And uh, they're they're feeding... Uh, they're fledglings and they're keeping in... I, I think we we mentioned this a, a, a wee while back when we're saying it can be, it could be murder doing bird ID just by sound alone at this time of year because so many of the youngsters have just these little communication calls. That call there that you had from the wren, that's actually, you know, a well-known alarm call. But if its fledglings are out and they hear that, they're going to keep themselves pretty much hidden and it, it, it right. could be any sort of predator it could be well, something as obvious as a
1: cat or a crow or something Bloke hanging out the loft window with a phone camera that kind exactly of thing exactly that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 yes. cool. well well done to both of you for showing me up there
0: no not showing up at all well done for you for recording it that's that's what we got to do that's how you further your knowledge
1: so next section is what's in father's diary this month.
2: Oh right. What is in father's diary this month?
0: I wanted to do something we've I know we've got quite a few subscribers and listeners uh up in town up in a dear old smoke of uh, London um, Millions. and There is an incredibly old tradition that goes on in July uh, in London, and it involves the humble mute swan, and it's called swan-upping. Have you heard of it?
2: Swan-upping? Yeah. Like one-upping someone. Swan up it
0: will kind of in a funny sort of way. Um, so is, it's, is, is a it's,
2: mute swan different to a swan?
0: Uh, well, okay, yeah, let's quickly do that. In this country, we have three stroke four types of swan, so we have mute swans which are here year round. And is that exactly what it says in the tin? Yes, uh, well, okay. you've heard the noise they do make, they're not exactly mute, uh, Wait, hiss. And, yeah, they hiss, and um, <laughs> that is not mute at <laughs> they all. They really do it's Very hiss. incorrectly yeah.
2: labelled that. It should be. But we also have uh, terrifying swan.
0: Two types of uh migratory swan, and uh, the Hooper swan, and the Buick's swan. Um They they tend to stay very much on v- huge waterways or the coast but they they come here for the winter months uh from further up north they breed up on the tundra and uh but the likelihood is unless you went bird watching somewhere nice on the coast uh you probably won't see them but well we're seeing and, and they do make you know, wonderful noises, uh, and of course we also have the the black swan, which is an introduction. And they don't breed in big numbers, but they're certainly around the place. So, largely they were kept as an ornamental bird, and uh, and so the the swan upping is all about the uh, mute swan, with particularly on the River Thames. So, and I just ask as well: is, is,
2: is, is the mute swan like the classic? Swan that everyone sees, right? yes. If you yeah, see a swan, it's that probably a quintessential, swan. Yeah. Swan. Yeah, yeah, British yeah. swan. Uh,
0: the, the two migrants are also beautiful, bold, white, upright swans. They've got different uh, bills, you know, their beaks are different, and they tend to be yellowish. Uh, but you know, at a huge distance and without binoculars, you could be forgiven for getting the two confused quite easily. Um, But I don't think you get any on the Thames. Someone will probably prove me wrong there. They might well get them at Barnes Waterfowl, for all I know. That's up in London. Uh, So, yeah, if you do, do let us know. It'd be great to hear. Uh, So Swan Upping, then? Yeah, so Swan Upping. So a lot of people uh, know about this sort sort of almost sort of legendary thing that the Queen owns all of our swans. And that uh, you know you you can't do anything with swans at all. Otherwise, you're breaking the law. Indeed, uh, it's treasonous. So potentially, you could be strung up for it. So so, and it's partially true. Um,
2: well, If you killed Swan Tower of London job, is it?
0: <laughs> well, I think back in the day, but not anymore. The tre- the treason thing was dropped i mean recently very recent but of course uh our swans are protected birds so they they afford the same protection as most wild birds that aren't on the sort of uh the the general license as they call it which are the pest birds so we've got these uh so lovely mute swans and uh I've never been to this, so I'm just sort of... I plucked it out of the air of something fabulous that might be enjoyed by Londoners in July. I think there's between three and five days, and this has been going on, believe this or not, since the 12th century. All of the um, swans are captured and they are marked with an ownership mark. Now, they're owned by the Queen, but they're they're managed effectively by, um, let me get this right, it's the the Worshipful Company of Vintners and Dyers, which is one of the old livery companies, and it's their responsibility to gather these swans up. In the old days, they would put their mark on their beaks, because, you know, the beak is kind of like a, a, a fingernail or a hoof-type, you know, material they could actually cut into it a nick with a pattern on that designated the, the ownership. Uh, but nowadays they put rings on their legs. So if you, if you go for a wander along the Thames yourself, uh, you'll see that you know ne- nearly all the swans will have rings on their legs.
1: That seems um, like less invasive, doesn't it? A ring on the leg rather than an engravement on your beak. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and of course, doing it this time of year... Gives them the opportunity to do all the cygnets, which is the name for the immature swans, uh, and yeah, it's essentially the immature yes, queens.
2: Uh, it's the, the young swans, John, not the immature well, the ones. Well, yeah, that's that's a personality trait, surely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's probably a subject for another one. But no, you do you do call. Um, Birds like immature, so they have a, a lot of things like a, a lot of seabirds, a lot of the gull family. They have an immature plumage, and yes, maybe it is a bit judgmental. We could look into that. Mm.
2: <laughs> gulls are so, quite immature, though, <laughs> as a bird. Who gulls? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're noisy, are, aren't they're they? They're the classic everyone's bird. chips. Yeah, um, exactly.
0: So if you're Throw around up. in London. OK, I think it's between the 20th and the 23rd of July or, or well, obviously, it might be a bit more than that because of the dates. But you'd have to check it out. And it, the Swan Upping takes place over 80 miles, believe it or not, of river between Eaton Bridge in Berkshire. And I think it's called Malsford on Thames in Oxfordshire. And uh, I don't know whether there's any uh, capability to volunteer, get involved and do something it's become much more of a sort of nature orientated thing now so they they don't just whack a ring on the legs they take measurements they look at their general health and uh and just monitor populations and things like that but um it's a strange archaic thing to think that it started so long ago and i presume i don't know that it started because it could be seen that the the swan might be a a, a good food source, and uh, being that they look so fabulous, I should think the monarchs at the time thought, no, the peasants shall not eat them. We shall. So, but to this day, the the queen she does own all of the all of the swans in the country, including the black swans. Uh, but she only has what you might call, I don't know what you'd call it, a sort of management jurisdiction over the ones on the Thames.
2: Nice. So that's Jasper,
1: that. you're something of a swan whisperer. That's something that you should get involved in, yeah, surely. I think so.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think it's... You're on it the Thames and all. Intriguing. I actually don't have an excuse not to go swan-upping this year. So... Um, <laughs> So I will I will catch my own and put a ring on it then, that's what you're saying, John.
0: I think only do it under authority. Otherwise, you might be you know up facing Tower Her Majesty's wrath. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Fine. <laughs> and then All you'll right. see the ravens.
2: Stones. Yay. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome to 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 come up. John, if you would like to uh, swan up with me later this month. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sounds good. Father and son swan up in time. Yeah. I'll try anything twice. twice. (laughs) Precious. Section three.
1: Robert. What on earth is father doing this month?
2: Yeah, but what on earth is Father doing this month? So slightly different to, slightly different to our event. This is something that you can do specifically this month to enhance your connection with nature. John, what have you got for us?
0: Right, this I, I decided to do this little one after um, an inquiry came in from uh, Ian. So thank you, Ian, for that, that inquiry. And talking about hedge cutting, um, I had to do a little bit of hedge cutting a wee while back because basically we were being hemmed in at home and couldn't get the car out of the drive. And uh, And uh, Ian was asking, you know, is it a good time to really be cutting the hedges right now because they nesting birds? And it's a really mute point. So um, I just thought I'd give my, my slant on where we stand with that um so essentially birds start their nesting habit quite early in the year as we've we've talked about when we're talking about sort of you know st valentine's day etc when birds are really starting to uh pair up and uh get their territory sorted out now you know it's a bit of a i'm doing a bit of a blanket thing here because obviously there's variations but uh Birds will start to try and have their, f- f- what you might call, first broods as soon as they are paired up and got a territory. So let's say for the average hedge laying, uh, for a hedgeland dwelling bird, they might be nesting in early March. Now, once they've started nesting, in those early times, it's really important not to disturb them. Even when they've got eggs... They will still quite often desert, but as soon as you uh see them coming and going with food and you know that they they 've got obviously uh chicks as opposed to eggs, they don't desert so easily, and they can become a bit more tolerant i 've heard several people who have needed to move nests because of you know building projects and this that and the other, and if it 's done in a very skillful way they will keep going to and fro, because I think, obviously, that bond has grown very strongly then. Now, just forward-wind a little bit, and you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, is it really the right time, this, that, and the other? It might not be, because you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I was watching the robin or the chaffinch, you know, going in and out of that bush, but uh, I've seen the chicks, they're out, they've fledged. But once they've become independent... Very often a lot of our species will attempt a second brood and so they can be nesting sort of obviously a bit later on. The other thing that can uh, sort of change the timings is quite a lot of our, our birds are very vulnerable to predation especially with first broods before the leaves are fully out and so they'll get the first brood going. Uh, I'm thinking particularly things like missile thrushes, song thrushes, blackbirds. They're quite visual and they're quite easy to see. So if they get their um, nests all going before they're really in full cover, you can bet your bottom dollar they'll probably fall prey to one of the corvids. So we're talking carrion crow, uh, magpie, jay, jackdaw. And as soon as they lose that brood, they will actually build another nest they don't usually use the same one bizarrely but they'll build another nest in a different area and get that brood going so going back to when's a good time to cut a hedge it's not as straightforward as well it's now you know july the first and therefore everything will be done and dusted it might not be but birds feeding young are actually very visual so My only advice would be, if you've got a hedge that you're thinking is getting way out of order, I really want to cut it, and especially if it's a thorny hedge, like a hawthorn or blackthorn, uh, which has got great potential for loads of nests, as opposed to laurel, which is often a bit poor. Um, But if it's something like, you know, a a good thorny hedge, just watch it for a while. If you've got birds nesting along it, you will see them. And I know w- with this particular family, uh, they they had a, a couple of uh, Dunnocks using their hedge, and they were coming, they were going to and fro quite a bit. So I'm making the assumption they might well still have had fledglings in the in the hedge. Now it could be that because that the, they got fledglings and the desire is strong, just cutting the hedge might not have damage that bond but of course it might have exposed the nest to dangers so it's just something to be aware of and um, so use your eyes and monitor it and of course the other thing to think of at this time of year uh, which I'm going to come on to a little bit later as well is the fact that if you are talking things like blackthorn uh, you don't want to really cut, cut it if you've got loads of um, berries forming a because those berries might be good for you know overwintering birds and such like right? or b if you're looking to sort of use them yourself it'd be a shame to cut them off before they're ripe so they're just my little parameters about sort of when 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 to and when not to cut your hedge but don't get penned in
2: <laughs> so when you say you got other things that you're going to come on to uh when specifically do you mean because that is uh, the end of the episode
0: Oh, yes, no, all I was going to say is keep your eyes out now when you 're doing your daily walk at we've we've been looking at the the progress of things through the season and we've been looking at you know things flowering and things sort of setting seed and such like right? now 's the time to really start to keep looking out if you, if you 're fond of a bit of foraging, which I am um, start looking out for those potential foraging crops i'm thinking. Uh, things like the elderberries are all forming blackberries are forming and some of them are looking almost ripe if you're in a very sunny area uh, blackthorn uh, fruits which are called slows i noticed only this week are just starting to swell up and go a little bit blue which is a good sign and uh, things like hazelnuts if you know where they're going to be in a reasonable number you stand some chance of getting them before the darn squirrels. So that's my tip for, like, just when you're out getting some fresh air, walking along the hedgerow, sort of, uh, you know, start start looking at your potential foraging sites.
2: Mmm. Excellent. Well, as ever, thank you very much, <laughs> Father. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Johnny. I think... We just need to end the episode in the new traditional way supplied by John last month, which is enjoy the nature. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Is that Ron's strap line? Sorry. So, everyone, <laughs> our signature thanks for listening sign and enjoy the nature. Enjoy the nature.
0: Did I really say that?
2: <laughs>
1: oh, how original.